Gresham College presents Does God Act? by Gwen Griffith Dixon, Gresham Professor of Divinity. Good evening. Welcome to Gresham College. Um, Tonight's topic is the question of if there is a God, can that God act somehow in the world? Did God just create the world and then step back and let it all tick over? Or does God actually intervene in some way and start manipulating or influencing events in the world? There is the usual spectrum and divergence of views. And at one end of the spectrum is something that in the 18th century people called deism, which in a way is still a very widely held view, but people nowadays don't tend to call themselves deists because it sounds a bit old-fashioned, sounds sort of 18th century. But the deist basically thinks that God created the world and set it up, then sort of took early retirement and left it kind of ticking over on its own, letting things go on without uh, any divine active assistance. So while it was a characteristically Enlightenment view, it's not unlike a view that many hold today who think there is some kind of creator, but not um, a very hands-on deity who gets involved with answering personal prayer, knows each of us by name, performs miracles, um, acts like a sort of divine superman, to zap missiles as they fly. At the other end of the spectrum, there are views that go by various names, things like occasionalism or universal divine sovereignty, that's another tag, or omni-determinism, determining everything, God determines everything. So on this view, nothing at all, not even evil, is outside God's actual activity. This is a fairly robust view, as uh, you can imagine when you start thinking about things like atrocities, that these are somehow also part of God's plan, not just something that God reluctantly allowed to happen, but actually part of God's will somehow. So this God would be one without whom, for example, a war on Iraq would not be possible unless a war on Iraq in some way was God's will. So there are a number of particular questions that lie within this overall problem. And the first one is um, whether you see the universe as open or closed, if I can put it that way, to God's activity. So can God sort of reach in, like the owner of a fish tank, and meddle in the world somehow? Or is the universe this tightly sealed web of material causality? God can't violate laws of human nature and so on. Maurice Wiles, the uh, Anglican philosopher of religion, said that God does not act in particular isolated events. God doesn't maintain a tight control over everything that happens. So God limits himself by creating, in particular by creating human beings that have free will. That constitutes a kind of boundary to God's activity. In other words, God... One thing that an allegedly omnipotent God doesn't do is coerce people or force people. He just leaves people to get on with it according to their freedom. And this is also necessary, Maurice Weil says, in order to have a material world that's stable. Because if I decide to drive too fast, I'm just about to run someone over and miraculously sort of fly over onto the pavement 
then it plays havoc with my, um, my moral reasoning, my learning from my mistakes, the sense that we somehow are responsible for our, our actions. The universe becomes this bizarre, unstable, unpredictable place, and we don't have the kind of regularity and consistency we need to become morally responsible creatures, says Maurice Wiles. So if God is constantly intervening to overturn all our bad ideas or our naughty activities, this would undermine the point of free will. So in other words, Wiles maintains this very hands-off, laid-back God for two reasons. One, because it's demanded by the problem of evil um, and human free will. And secondly, because nature needs to be regular and predictable. And it's therefore impossible for God to be intervening on certain occasions and not others. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, but still within um, Christian thinkers, Vernon White holds the view of universal divine sovereignty, that is, God's control over every event. So contrary to Wiles, White says that the very fact that the universe is regular doesn't preclude divine action and involvement in it. Divine involvement is a different order of explanation. It's not an explanation for any gaps in the scientific accounts that are given. So God's action, he says, is transcendent and hidden within all worldly occurrences. So it somehow transcends all natural action, but somehow is at the same time imminent within it. It's a cause of worldly events, but in a way that is different from material causes. So God acts in the world, expresses God's intentions in the world, in and through it, and in through us, in an analogous way to the way that we can move our bodies, he says, and invest them with meaning and purpose. So this can happen both through events in the world, but also um, by God acting as through other agents like ourselves. God can somehow act through our own action. That gives him a fairly robust uh, stance on the problem of evil. So something like the Shoah or the Holocaust, he would say, in some way, God takes up as part of his overall plan, horrible though it is. Now, there are sort of middle-of-the-road middle views that try and find a way to negotiate between these two extremes, and two thinkers would be Keith Ward in this country, Regis Professor at Oxford, or Thomas Tracy in America. And one way that they find of trying to kind of wobble between these two is to appeal to modern physics, for example, modern accounts of science. Keith Ward says the closed universe, the sort of enlightenment view, is dead. And in the light of modern physics, we don't see the universe as this kind of clockwork, um, regular entity that's self-contained and closed to the action of God. He says, purely on scientific grounds, that closed universe model is no longer tenable. So it's false to suppose there's a kind of complete model of the universe with just a few gaps. He says, rather, there is no consistent and complete model at all. So God's action, he suggests, are invisible in the way that the laws of physics are invisible, which doesn't mean that it's impossible to detect, he says. Aside from the visible fact that the universe exists at all, thanks to God's creation, God is continually bringing new states of the universe into being. 
leaving many alternatives open to free choice. So Ward suggests there are five kinds of die in action, or at least five kinds. I always have to suppress a smirk when people give you tidy lists of things. Uh, the sort of heretic in me says, well, maybe there's really six, and their sort of imagination failed them at the last minute, or maybe two and three are really just versions of the same thing. I have the same reaction I have to say in reading the Kama Sutra, and you think, well, isn't position 17 the same as <laughs> position 32 but with the fingers crossed or looking the other direction or something? So please don't report that to Professor Ward. Um, the five delimited kinds of, human, of divine action that God can engage in, he says, are, first of all, the act of bringing the universe into being, and then particular acts of imaginative development which shape the universe in contingent ways. Then here comes the modern physics bit. Acts in response to chance permutation of natural forces and also creatures' free choices. So in those bits of modern physics, which I don't understand, but we're in, where you, there is genuine indeterminacy, those are the sort of open bits, according to Keith Ward, where God can steer particles or atoms in one way or another. Then the sort of spiritual bit, number four, are acts by which God relates in a distinctively personal way to created persons in revelations and so on. And then finally, acts of redemptive shaping of good out of evil in order to achieve a final consummation. So the acts of God in nature will be these hidden but all-pervasive causal influences which shape these emergent processes of physical reality towards goals which take their specific form only in the process itself, but in a general way are laid down as ideas in the mind of God. So both Ward and Tracy find a kind of niche for God's action in the physical universe, uh, in these suggestions from modern physics that not everything in nature is totally determined. And there are some events which are not entirely determined and God can without offense, so to speak, and reach in there and affect them without violating natural laws or something else similarly unseemly. So these suggestions can provide an account of God's agency in the world which satisfy the religious demands of the mainstream monotheist, but without giving offense to modern scientific sensibilities. But it does look a little apologetic. It does look a little bit as if they're trying to find nooks and crannies in the universe where God can be deemed to act, but not in a way that's going to offend us or offend sciences. And there are actually other ways and different paths that thinkers have taken uh, to, to explore these. Well, in the past, this question of how an immaterial God can act in a material world was often felt to be the most burning question because it was either felt to be contradictory, philosophically or unseemly, religiously, that, that a, an incorporeal, immaterial God muddy his hands with the material world. Our attitude towards matter is perhaps a little more dynamic, <clears throat> and this is maybe the less problematic question. Whereas our own attitude nowadays to human freedom is much more assertive than it used to be. Our notion of our rights and entitlements as individuals, I think it's much higher than it has been in the past. So in some ways, in Jewish and Christian circles, the more intractable problem now isn't so much to understand how God can influence matter, 
but it's how you square a divine action with human freedom and a sense of human agency. First of all, many people seem to assume that if you claim that God does something, it means that a human being didn't do it. So these two are seen as two different explanations. Did you do that, or did God do that, or what's the cause, or the single cause or origin of this particular event? But typically, middle-of-the-road theists want to assert a number of different things. First of all, that there is such a thing as human free will and moral responsibility. They want to assert that our actions are effective and therefore that we bear a responsibility for them and for what they set in train. And at the same time, they want to maintain that God does act in the world also. In fact, they want to say that God is all-powerful, even though they want to assert at the same time we have some sort of independent agency. Now, I say middle-of-the-road theists because, of course, in Islam or Judaism or Christianity and the Western monotheisms, there are certainly religious positions that have slacked off on one or another of those competing demands. But if sort of of middle-of-the-road moderate believers want to assert all those different things, they have some explaining to do. For example, how can human action and divine action exist side by side so God is unhindered, yet human beings are completely responsible and accountable so that God's omnipotence isn't compromised and yet human beings can still do something. One account that tries to hold these things together was put forward by Austin Farrer. He called it double agency. In other words, divine agency and human agency. And that's a concept which suggests that both God and a human being can cause an event because the nature of God's action is to work in and through other agents. So in Farrer's words, God's agency must actually be such as to work omnipotently on, in, or through creaturely agencies without either forcing them or competing with them. So the agency of God and the agency of creatures have to be understood on, as being on two different levels. So in one event, both the divine and the creaturely agents are fully active. God hasn't overwhelmed the finite in- agent so that it is merely a passive instrument. And God isn't simply the creator and sustainer who allows the creaturely agent to act independently of the divine agency. Double agency, as far as I can see, is very clearly not some things. Uh, It's hard to see what it very clearly is, but I can tell you three things that it's not meant to be. One, it's not meant to be a case where two agents, God and a, a person, are cooperating by each contributing part of the action. So if two people are together pulling a boat out of the water, double agency is not like that. Because you don't want to suggest that God needs help. On the other hand, you don't want to suggest that if someone is doing something, they're not really doing something, and they're just a kind of puppet of God. So they're not both doing the same thing together. And double agency is not not two people doing different things to achieve the thing together. So one person is holding the sails, and the others have got their hand on the tiller. So it's not that God's doing the God bit, and the person's doing the person bit. It's not that either. And it's not a kind of delegation, so it's not the state of affairs 
that God does something the way that I give my younger son some chocolate by giving it to my older son and getting him to pass it on. So it's not like that either. Um, it means that two agents are somehow doing the same thing and yet, and not doing two different things. Yet there's got to be some distinction between the divine and the human action. And this is rather difficult to get clear. If there's a genuine of unity, if there's a genuine unity of action, there's no duality of causes. And if there's a duality of causes, there's no genuine unity of action. So this is slightly complicated. Thomas Tracy, for example, is slightly sympathetic <clears throat> to this point of view, but has difficulties with it. And he doesn't particularly like Vernon White's point of view that I mentioned earlier, where God is the direct cause of every event. <clears throat> he worries that this might make creatures just the sort of puppet or just the opportunity for God exercising power so that the action is really God's and not the human beings. So he says, for example, if our acts are directly enacted by God, then there is an important sense in which they are not free. And if they are free in this strong sense, then they cannot be direct actions of God. So in his view, we must continue to grapple with what he calls the mutually limiting character of claims about human freedom and divine agency. The mutually limiting character of, of claims about human aid, freedom and divine agency. Now, do we need to see the divine and human as limiting one another? Why not see the divine as enabling and empowering human activity? not as competing with it. As we explored in the lectures last term, it may be a mistake to see God's transcendence as the contrast to or the denial of what is human. Because that has the paradoxical result of making God less transcendent, it imprisons God within particular boundaries and threatens to make him finite. So some Catholic thinkers like David Burrell, for example, draw on traditions found in Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas sees divine providence as working through creatures, as he puts it, from the abundance of divine goodness, imparting to creatures also the dignity of causing. So part of God's gift is to create human beings in such a way that they too can be active, can be causes. So this Thomist view sees God's activity first as bringing everything into existence, which means not just that everything is created, but it means they're created in a certain way. They're created with the activities, the desires that they have. So God's action, therefore, doesn't just vastly exceed our own, which is the language, for example, you find in Thomas Tracy. That makes it sound like our activity it's all in a continuum, so you get dogs here and dolphins here and humans there and gods there. Uh, that they're all different, increasingly powerful versions of the same thing. Whereas the, the viewpoint from Thomas Aquinas is that God isn't on the continuum at all. It's just something else entirely. From this sort of critique, you can begin to speculate that the secret core of understanding this issue lies with the problem of language and how you're actually going to speak about God's action. 
And to bring this out a little bit, I want to quote from a somewhat neglected, I think, philosopher of religion and a friend of mine who sadly died last month, Gareth Moore, who wrote a book called Believing in God, a philosophical essay. And it's very much steeped in Wittgenstein. Uh, so it is very concerned with trying to understand what believers are actually doing when they say things. Not just debating concepts, but what, what does this language actually mean? What are they actually doing when they say they believe in this or that? Now, he points to a gospel story that may be familiar to many of you in which Jesus is described as stilling a storm. We sound asleep and the storm happens and his disciples are terrified and Jesus wakes up and rebukes <clears throat> the storm, rebukes the disciples, everyone calms down. And he takes it as a reminder that talking about God's action doesn't mean that God acts on things. The story, he says, indicates an alternative kind of language that has always been prominent in the Christian tradition, one not of causality, but of command which I think is an interesting suggestion because it shifts the uh, framework away from a scientific framework, a slightly mechanical thing of cause and effect, to a relationship kind of thing, a communication kind of thing, God's command, not God as one of many possible causes. God is said to create by command, which he says makes clear that God does not do anything to things, does not act on, upon them, does not interfere with them, make them different from what they would otherwise have been. There's no temptation to postulate an invisible agent behind the scenes who brings about events as causes bring about their effects. To understand events as having been brought about by God is, on this model, to see them not as effects of somebody with great power, great strength, but as signs of somebody with great authority. So in miracle stories, he says, there isn't some divine causal mechanism at work. In fact, the essential point of a miracle story is that there is no causal mechanism at work, and that's precisely why we want to call these things miracles, because we can't find the cause for them. To ask how it happened and look for the causal mechanism that, that is God treats the meaning of the story as if uh, it is a series of tricks God's activity is just a particularly clever way of achieving some physical effect. But when we say that God acted, he says, we don't sort of work out by process of elimination that it must have been God who did it because we've ruled out everything else. Nor are there two different things whose relationship we must understand. Over here, God's command, and over here, the event. How do these two relate? They're not separate events. So as he puts it, to see something happening in the natural world is precisely to see God's command being obeyed. According to Moore, I cannot suspect, for instance, that the snow is not really obeying God, but was going to fall anyway, or that it misheard or misread the command. This just is the language that we use to describe what happens in the material world if you are a believer. So if snow falls in London in January, as it did, we don't imagine that the snow had planned to fall and that God happened to want snow to fall and fortunately their agendas agreed. Or do we think 
God wanted the snow to fall and had to kind of communicate it to the snow and it took him seriously and obeyed him? Or do we think, we don't think either that um, God didn't want the snow to fall, but the snow was there and they're all there with their little white parachutes waiting to go and they just got a little overexcited. They didn't hear the command, they just jumped anyway and the snow didn't obey God's command. This is not the way that that believers actually view the relationship between God and natural events. To see it happen at all is to see God's will happening. So to say something has been done by God is to react to an event in a particular way, according to Gareth Moore, not to infer that the event was brought about by some invisible agent. So to describe an event as natural is not to deny God's action or God's involvement. It's rather a way of saying about some events, don't wonder about them, don't think of them as significant, don't think of them as extraordinary. They're perfectly ordinary, so don't pay any particular attention to them. So if a statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary becomes moist around the eyes, or if, as apparently happened in India last year, a burned chapati, the spots on a burned chapati, resemble a bearded face and might be taken to be the face of Jesus, if we want to say this is not a miracle, this is not a divine event, it's just a natural event, we're not, well, what are we saying? We're not saying that um, God's will was that the chapati not burn, but the chapati defied him, and therefore this was just a natural event. And we're not saying that statues of the Blessed Virgin Mary are so insignificant that they escape God's control and they can just do what they like and it wasn't God's will. What we're really saying is, look, this is not important. Don't get excited about the chapati. Don't travel to see the statue. Focus on what is important. That's what people are saying when they deny that something is, should be seen as miraculous. Not that God is somehow uh, forcibly detached from that event, but that we don't want it to be seen as having a particular spiritual significance. On the other hand, according to Gareth Moore, to attribute an event to God's intervention is to say, see this event as significant. Don't think of it as ordinary. Think of it as being charged with meaning. Be impressed with it. So conversely, this can be true even if we can actually provide natural explanations for the event. So as a thought experiment, imagine that Muslims and Christians and Jews and Sikhs and Buddhists and humanists and Hindus and atheists all over the world unite in a continual round-the-clock meditation or prayer or whatever form that they believe in, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, as a sort of peace vigil against war in the Middle East. And let's say that after that, no one was struck by lightning, but everyone was struck by goodwill and cooperation and uh, the political structure of Iraq was transformed. If there are any weapons of mass destruction, they were decommissioned. The US and UK forces went home alive and unhurt. The Iraqi people even got to keep their own oil and uh, keep the profits from it, use it to rebuild their infrastructure or stock their pharmacies. If that happened, we can imagine that a perfectly plausible historical account could be written about it, saying, well, this is what happened, and this is why this happened. So in one sense, we wouldn't call it a miracle, but the people who took part in this, 
experiment might well want to say this was God's doing. This was clearly divine in some sense or just miraculous given that the momentum towards war is increasingly being called unstoppable. So unlike the burned chapati or the statue with moist eyes, they're saying, be impressed with this. This does have religious significance, even if we can give a perfectly good account of it in social political terms. Another thinker called Barry Miller is similarly inspired by Thomism, not by Wittgenstein like uh, Gareth Moore but takes up the idea that God's activity occurs on a different plane from human activity and yet grounds it and supports it. So the relationship between God's and the creature's activity is to say God brings it about that the creature does it, not God brings it about. This doesn't, he says, reduce people to being mere instruments of God's will. God brings it about that someone does something doesn't imply God brings someone to do something or God makes someone do something. So, for example, God brings it about that I decide to put a spin on tonight's lecture involving war on Iraq doesn't mean God forced me to do that. God, having created me the way he did with the certain features of my personality or with whatever opinions I happen to have, God created me that way. I have freely chosen to do it, but it is all God's doing that I exist, that I exist as I do, and that I continue to exist in this way. So he draws attention to the fact that when we talk about God creating in the Western monotheist traditions, God doesn't create from something. God doesn't act on something. God creates ex nihilo, as we say. God creates from nothing. And so too with God's action. And in fact, I suppose what you could really say is God's action and God's creation are not really different on this model. God acting consists in creating things as they are with the actions that they do. Now, in Islam, you find almost more clearly the same structure of the problem that we've just been looking at. So the Asharites, the followers of Al-Ashari, say there's no creator but God. Not only human beings themselves, but also every one of their actions are created by God. Human beings, therefore, do not have this sort of free and random choice, and they don't have independent power over their own actions. Any power held by any creature would compromise the omnipotence of God. Now, the Mutazilites, who in Western terminology might be seen as the more liberal wing of Islamic theology, took serious exception to this account, mainly because of what we would call the problem of evil and of justice. So from their point of view, it may have preserved God's omnipotence or God's majesty, but at the price of Allah's justice. For it entails that God wills someone to do evil and then punishes them for having been evil. So they believed in a kind of delegation, if you like, a tough weed, in which God creates us with power and creates us with intelligence and entrusts us with using them according to our own will, at our own risk, if you like, and on our own responsibility. 
So we have real power and independence from God. God does not influence us in a particular direction. So you can imagine from the Asherite point of view that this creates a rather unacceptable picture of human beings as having too much independence and too much power over against God. Take a little digression here into the Jewish tradition, but a Jew who wrote in Arabic. That's uh, Maimonides, Jewish philosopher Maimonides. And his way of describing the situation was to say that God works indirectly by influencing our intellects. So Maimonides had this highly intellectual picture of our relationship to God, and what he describes is sort of mystical in that he describes a unity with God, but it's through knowledge, through understanding, and a very intellectual approach. But the more that we unite our intellects with God, the more that God influences us to do his will, and that is how God acts, through union with humanity in their intellects. Maimonides had a theological son, Rabbi Abraham ben Moses ben Maimon, and he, interestingly, was profoundly influenced by Islamic mysticism, by Sufism, and in some areas of his thought, in fact, the Sufi Islamic influence actually overcame his father's Jewish rationalist influence. And in one of the areas where that's so is actually this particular question, the question of divine action. But incidentally, this case of Rabbi Abraham shows you that to let no one tell you that interfaith dialogue is some kind of newfangled invention, because this is the 12th century um, common era. So in particular, from this mystical influence, the one area that he really wants to nuance from his father's um, point of view was this intellectualism. So theoretical knowledge and reflection, he says, are very important, but they need to be balanced by purity of heart, purity of soul, and sort of striving and self-perfection. And the unity with God is therefore emotional, intellectual, spiritual, many-faceted. So for Rabbi Abraham, the question of divine activity becomes a particular place of trust, special trust in God. He does believe that God can work miracles, but he also rejects the other, the extreme point of view of omnideterminism or predestination, which denies human beings what he sees as their own agency and power. And interestingly, he suggests that the real difference between the believer and unbeliever isn't actually about miracles, it's about the natural events. It's the status that we give to natural events, the snow, for example, that the believer sees that even in natural events, God is also at work. The best medicine wouldn't work if it were not God's will that it do so. Natural events couldn't operate through their normal chains of cause and effect if it were not continually God's will that it do so. Well, Islamic theology, of course, did develop its own alternative path uh, between the predestination and omnideterminism of the Asherites and the sort of delegation view of the Mutazilites. This emerges particularly strongly in the early Shiite thinkers in, in uh, 12 Imam Shiism. There's a hadith about Imam al-Sadiq, one of the great lights of Shiism, died about 765 in um, Western the Western year. And in this story, a man is described as tackling Imam Sadiq about this particular question. And Imam al-Sadiq rejects the Asherite view. He says, Allah is more just 
than to make people commit misdeeds than chastise them for what they've done. But he also rejects the Mutazilite view. If he had delegated to them, he would not have confined them to enjoining good and forbidding evil. And I'm not entirely sure what he means, but I think what he's saying is if God really was going to delegate power to humanity, why just stop with what they're allowed to do? Why not delegate to them also responsibility for deciding what is good and evil? So does it really make sense to say that God sets everything out and then delegates to you whether you actually obey him or not? And I think that's an interesting challenge because it's not one you see in, in Christianity much, that this delegation view is actually to a certain extent inconsistent. But when the man asks the imam if there's any middle way, any station as he calls it, between these two positions, the imam exclaims, yes, wider than the space between heaven and earth, which I think is a useful quip to remember any time someone tries to force you between two extremes. Yes, a whole world of possibilities in between the two things you've offered me. This uh, station between the stations, as the Hadith describes it, or the sort of Muslim middle way, argues that human beings do have free will and they do have possibility of action for which they are responsible. But precisely because they are created that way by God and they are continually maintained in existence by God and they are continually empowered to act in each moment by God. So in that way, human actions are their own and are at the same time actions of God. For there is no affair and no action and no authority but God's in the Islamic tradition and every power comes from him. So in fact, this position is essentially the one that the thinkers I described a little while ago were looking for, the Catholic thinkers, Moore, Miller. Um, in other words, Imam al-Sadiq's point of view is sort of the cousin or in fact the forerunner of the later position that Thomas Aquinas was going to work out. So on this view, returning to my early question at the beginning, can God, for example, intervene to stop a war on Iraq? Yes. Why? Because we can. How? Through our action. But then is that also God's action? Yes, because that is what he made us to be like, and he keeps us in being being that way. So then what does the difference between God's action and our action look like? Nothing at all. In the Sufi tradition that so inspired Rabbi Abraham, son of Maimonides, there's a story that I think in a more intuitive way puts across this rather complex and nuanced position from Imam al-Sadiq or Thomas Aquinas. And it describes a man at some length going through the world seeing suffering and evil. He sees sickness, he sees torture, he sees death, he sees war. And finally, he can't take it anymore. And he rounds on God saying, God, why did you not do something about it? And God replies, I did do something about it. I made you. Thank you very much. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.